And please take your Bibles once again this morning and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and the last time I preached on Romans, I concluded with verse 11, and so we're going to read verses 12 through 21. Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, <clears throat> judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, <clears throat> many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness, excuse me, through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God and ask for his help in prayer as we come to his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this particular part of your word and ask that you would give us help this morning. Help me as a preacher. Help us all as hearers of your word to understand what it says. Help me to clearly articulate what it says and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through this passage of scripture. We thank you for it and ask that you would indeed take it and write it upon all of our hearts and bring forth fruit in our lives that our exercise here would not be a vain exercise, that we would all become not only hearers of the word, 
but doers of it for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I literally did not prepare an introduction. If I showed you my notes, you would see there's just a blank spot after the uh, word intro at the top. Usually I at least put a word or two there. I was taught better. I was taught to have a very full uh, preparation for an introduction. But the Lord intervened and helped this morning. Uh, if you were here for the adult Sunday school class, you heard an hour-long introduction to my message. Every now and then I say to Pastor Smith after a Sunday school class, I say, you teed up the ball for me this morning. And he really did uh, today. Sorry uh, for those of you who are not here for it. But this subject of Adam and Christ, which is before us today, really fits in to a couple of the things that Pastor Smith said. He taught about the sovereignty of God. And one of the points of sovereignty of God was God is sovereign over men. God is sovereign over sin. And God is sovereign over salvation. And we see in this passage, really, some of the behind-the-scenes realities about the sovereignty of God and the predestinating grace of God by which sinners are condemned, but also sinners are saved. And that's the glorious truth that Paul brings before us in this last half of Romans chapter 5. So I want us to notice, first of all, the connection or the transition with what has gone before. There is a connection. Romans 5.12 begins with the word, therefore. And the, the, the reason for that is, is because something that has gone before has a conclusion that Paul wants to draw now. He wants to say, here are some things that are true in light of the things that I have just written. And the commentators debate, is it what he just wrote in verse 11? Is it what he wrote in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? Is it what he wrote in chapter uh, 3, where he laid out the gospel up through chapter 5, 11? Or is it what he wrote beginning at Romans 1, 18, up through chapter 5, in verse 11? We can give a resounding yes to that question. Uh, we don't know if it's more limited or if it's broader. Let's think back, though, to the beginning of Romans, and especially where Paul goes into his teaching about salvation in Christ. He started out by asserting that God has condemned the whole world outside of Christ. Or we could say the whole world as they come into this world. Or we could say, in light of this passage we're looking at today, the whole world in Adam. They're under God's condemnation. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he goes on to demonstrate the universal sinfulness of mankind. It's not just Gentiles who are worshipers of idols. It's also Jews, God's chosen people. All of them are sinners, and sinners are under the judgment of God. They're under the cloud of His wrath. But then, as we come to chapter 3, and especially beginning at verse 21, Paul talks about salvation in Christ. He's painted that dark picture 
of this world in sin. And then he gives us those words, but God. And then he begins to tell us about the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. He, he lays out this gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Justification. Peace, as we come into chapter 5. Those of us who are justified have peace with God. We have joy in the Holy Spirit. We have hope. And hope that will one day come to fruition in glory when Christ comes again. Well, in verses 12 to 21 of chapter 5, we could say we are taken back to the roots of the death that sinners are under and the condemnation and the wrath of God that we're under. We're taken back to the roots of that death and also back to the roots of the life that they may come to know in Jesus Christ. And these roots are found in two key men. Two leaders, we could say, of men. Two heads, in the sense that they are the heads of a whole group of offspring or people that they represent. And of course, those two men, those two leaders, those two heads are Adam and Christ. That's the connection. That's the transition. But now we want to notice the main point of these verses, Romans 5, 12 to 21. Perhaps as we read, or maybe just from your knowledge of this chapter, you have noticed that there's a lot of repetition in this passage that I read. An awful lot of repetition. Paul states the same thing, in a sense, over and over. He varies the terms, as we're going to see, but there's a lot of repetition. And the main point we can find really in verse 12 and then also verse 18, especially the last half of verse 18. We read in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, and then we kind of fall off a cliff. My Bible here has a dash, and then it's followed by one, two, three, four, five, five or six, I think five verses of a parenthesis. Different English versions will put the parentheses in different places. But the point is, Paul starts a thought, and then he doesn't actually formally complete it. There's a sense in which you could say he restarts it at verse 18 and does complete it. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So he has the therefore, and he has as through one. But then he finishes the thought. Here's the finish of it. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So there's the thought, and that is the main point of this passage. I'm stating it this way. The lot or the inheritance of every man, that is every human being, is the fruit of the act of one of two men, whether for ill or for good. That's what this passage teaches. The lot of every man, and I'm talking about the final lot in particular, 
is the fruit of the act of one of two men, Adam or Christ. Let me, before I go on, mention a couple of other things before we leave this main point. In making this point, there are a couple of significant principles that are taught in Scripture that relate to God's dealings with men, and they come to bear on this last half of the chapter of Romans 5. And those two significant principles are what we could call federal headship and solidarity. Those are the two principles. I want to try not to get bogged down because I have a, a goal of preaching um, just three messages on these I think, ten verses. And that's expanded from last night, a goal of two messages. We'll see what happens. But here are the two significant principles we see. One is federal headship. Adam and Christ, many of you are already familiar with this terminology, are both federal heads. Federal comes from the Latin fetus, F-O-E-D-U-S, not F-E-T-U-S, fetus, which means a league or a compact. So they are leaders of groups or leagues of individuals. Adam is the head of the whole human race. Christ is the head of the church. Let's see how Paul put this in another place. Just turn over to the next epistle, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, and then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. And we'll see here how Adam and Christ are the heads of two great groups of people. For as in Adam all die, he's the head of all men, every person born into this world is dead in trespasses and sin because of Adam's sin, except for Christ. For as in Adam all die, that's true. Even so, in Christ all shall be made alive. His people, all of them, will be made alive. He's the head of the church. Look at verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Adam, when he was born into the world, though there were no children yet, he was the head of everyone who would ever be born to him and his wife Eve, all of their posterity, all their descendants. He was the head of them. Well, Christ, because he is also the head of all of his people, he's called the last Adam. All right, so hold that thought in your mind. There's this idea of federal headship. Second, I mentioned the principle of solidarity. Not a Bible word, but a Bible idea. Solidarity is the complete unity of a group. Some of you will remember, I think it was back in the, the, nine, the 80s, and I don't remember the exact timing of that. I think this group started before that, but the labor union group called Solidarity in Poland. They were all united and they stood together, there's the Solidarity, against communism and the communist leadership of their country. And eventually they prevailed. Solidarity is the unity of a group. That's true about all the members of a group. There's Solidarity. 
That's true about the members of a group and their head. Adam and all his sinful posterity, Christ and all of his people. There is unity there. And this is a thing that is ordained by God. God sees these groups, Adam and all his posterity as sinners. He sees them all as one. He sees Adam and all sinners as one. I think Pastor Donnelly preached here one time, and he wrote it, I think, in a book. about. He quoted a Puritan. I think it was either Thomas Goodwin or Thomas Boston. I can't remember. But he said, Adam and Christ are like two gigantic men with belts and hanging on hooks from their belt. In Adam's case, is all mankind as sinners. And in Christ's case, all his people. And their fate, if you will, is dependent on what those giant men or those heroes do in place of those who are hanging from their belt. God sees them as one. There is solidarity between the head and their people. He treats them as one. So Adam, that's true about Adam and all mankind. Let's look at Romans 5.12 again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus, in other words, because of the one man's sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. I'll explain that text a little bit more fully in a bit. But the Westminster Confession, short, sorry, shorter catechism, put it well when it explained that because of Adam's first transgression that plunged all mankind, just Adam's first sin, one sin, plunged all mankind into a state of sin and misery. That's what the catechism said. That is Bible truth. You see it here, among other places, but especially here in this chapter. And then secondly, this is true, this principle of solidarity, not only about Adam and all mankind, but also about Christ and his people. Verse 18 again. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, we'll see that this is Christ, the free gift came to all men, all the saved, all his people resulting in justification of life. I said we could consider these groups as leagues of people. My English dictionary that I consulted defines a league as especially, a, and that's a legitimate translation of, uh, of, of what we have here, a le legitimate understanding, a group that is formed by a covenant or an agreement, or a compact. And that certainly does apply with Christ and the new covenant, doesn't it? Christ is the head of the church through a covenant, the new covenant. Adam, theologians have said, is the head of all mankind on the basis of the covenant of works. He is their federal head. That's the idea. Now, the Bible does not use that terminology, covenant of works. It does use the terminology new covenant. There's a lot that could be said about that. I spoke about that very subject 
I don't know, a couple of years back now in teaching uh, adult Bible class lectures on the confession in chapter 7. You can consult those if you'd like. Romans 5 doesn't use that language. I'm leaving it right there. But this is clear. Adam is the federal head of the human race. Christ is the federal head of his people. This passage is asserting that. It's demonstrating that. Christ is the federal head of his people. The idea is this. What one does, one person, and we're talking about the head in this case, what one does is the basis to treat all as if they had done what the one did. You get it? That's the idea. And that's true because there is solidarity between them. We see this in the world all the time. Like Pastor, Pastor Smith said this morning, when we heard about the sovereignty of God over sin and over all men and over salvation. In Romans chapter 9, God ordained it that certain people would not be saved. And he said, you might not like that, but it's the truth. And instead of opening your, opening your mouth and complaining, you should close your mouth and put your hand over it to stop you from talking like that or thinking like that. What I want to say right now is, we see this idea of solidarity working in the world all the time. And I want to say this, you don't complain about it generally in the world, so you shouldn't complain about it when you see it in the Bible. For example, think of the story of David and Goliath, the account of that battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Remember what happened? Rather than having everybody go into battle and perhaps have a slaughter of thousands of people, they said, let's just settle this by having two men go at it. And if one of them wins, we'll declare his nation, his people, the winners, and the losers' nation, the losers. And that's what happened. David defeated Goliath. The Israelites were thus victorious. They, they were, in a sense, federal heads. They represented their whole army and nations. We see it, especially in the world of sports, you see it in soccer, football, as they call it. Uh, when there's a free kick at the end of the game, it's all tied up. One guy is left to kick. If he makes it, it remains a tie. Excuse me, if he, if he misses it, it remains a tie. If he makes it, that one man makes the one shot, his whole team goes home winners. Or free throw at the end of a basketball game. Time has expired. His team is down by one. The game ends with his shooting two free throws all by himself there at the line. It's just what he does. But on the basis of what he does, because of the rules of the game, the fate of his whole team rides. We get it. Or the last batter in a baseball game. His team is down by one. Runner on first base. Strikes out. His team loses. Hits a home run. His team wins. We're used to it. This is what we're being told here. 
The lot or inheritance of every man, every human, is the fruit of the act of one of two men, whether for ill or for good. That's the main point. Let's see this demonstrated in our text. And like I said, there's a lot here. And maybe I will speak very quickly, maybe too quickly, I hope not. But Paul wrote this in such a way that, like I said, there is a lot of repetition. And I think it'll help us to get a good overview of it all and let it sink in as we hear the same thing stated over and over again. Why would a writer like Paul do such a thing? Well, certainly for emphasis and because he wants it to sink in how important this truth is that we have in this passage. So there's the main point that the lot of every man is the fruit of the act of one of two men. Next, we want to notice a comparison of Adam and Christ, a comparison of Adam and Christ. And that's where we're going to be spending the rest of our time this morning. My next heading is the contrast between Adam and Christ, which is really the great point of this passage, the great contrast between Adam and Christ. But we have to start out with the comparison, and that's what we'll have before us today. So the comparison of Adam and Christ, and as I already mentioned, the point of comparison is, um, or, or I'll state it differently right now, each one of them, each one of these men, introduced something to the world to, as the scripture says, to all men. There's the point of comparison, or you could put it in terms of the last point we saw. Each one is a federal head of his people, or each one's actions affected a myriad of people, many people, all right? There's the main point of comparison put in three different ways. We'll start with Adam, noticing this in Adam, and then we'll go to Christ. First, Adam. And what I'm going to do is just go through these verses that are before us and singling out statements about Adam that demonstrate this point. First of all, Adam. The first point about Adam is this. He is the one originally to blame for the death of every human being. He's the one originally to blame for the death of every human being. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not a full sentence, but it's enough to make this point here. Adam is the one originally to blame for the death of every human being. Note a few things here before we move on to the next point. It says, through one man sin entered the world. That one man is Adam. It hasn't been named yet, but he will be named. Secondly, it says that through him, through that one man, sin entered the world. Ecclesiastes 7.29 tells us God made man upright. So there was no sin in the world. He made man upright. He made man and woman upright, we could say. The, the whole of mankind, who was only two people at that point, but he made them upright, but it says then, but they have sought out many inventions or many schemes. In other words, they went off into sin on their own, in a sense. It was not 
the work of God, as we heard in the adult class. It was not the purpose of God, if you will, from the standpoint of what God ordered men to do. And the account of Genesis 3, Adam eating the forbidden fruit, that's the occasion when he sinned and death, sin entered the world. And then the next point to note is that death then entered the world as a result of that one sin of the one man. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So if death entered the, sin entered the world, death had to follow. And it did. And it spread to everyone. Death spread, it says next, to all men. Why did it spread? Because of those principles I mentioned earlier. So the, the principle of federal headship, Adam was the sin, excuse me, Adam was the head of everyone who would ever result from his union with his wife. We're his posterity. Did sin come to us? Yes. Does death come to us? Yes. And then the next thing to notice is this. It says that is so because all sinned. Here's how you have to understand that. All means all the people descended from Adam. That includes you and that includes me. All sinned. And that means we sinned in Adam. This verse is telling us what is true as a result of having Adam as our head. It's not true what he's saying in this verse as a result of what you did in your life. I know, Paul knows, God certainly knows, every one of us has done enough to condemn ourselves on our own. But he's not talking about that in this verse. He's saying all sinned means, remember our point, federal headship and solidarity what Adam does, he does in your place. So the way God looks at it is, what Adam does, you do. And what Adam gets, you get. This is what Paul is saying. Next point about Adam. Because of Adam, death has reigned. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, from his time up to the time of Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So let's notice a few things here. First of all, regarding the word nevertheless. That goes there because of what Paul said in verse 13. We're not going to look at that this week. So let's just put that nevertheless out of your mind. Let's look at it as a statement here. Death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned, etc. What's the significance from, of, from Adam to Moses? Well, during that time, there was no written law. So we're tempted to say, all right, Adam had a clear revelation from God, at the very least in Genesis 2.17, when God said, you shall not eat from that fruit. But all these other people from Adam to Moses, they didn't have that kind of revelation. That's right. And Paul is saying, I understand that. Nevertheless, 
Death reigned from Adam to Moses. So we're tempted to say, how could they be condemned? They didn't know better. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. God told him, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. How could they be condemned? Well, it says there that they had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. In other words, they didn't have their eyes wide open the way Adam did. They didn't have it in writing like Moses gave them, gave to the Israelites, and they didn't have it with a word spoken from God in the Garden of Eden like Adam did. But Paul is saying, still, they die, they're condemned, and righteously. Adam knew better. God told him, don't eat. But they still died. All these people from Adam to Moses, Paul is saying. Which means, if they died, and God is a righteous judge who visits death for sin, they must have been guilty. And they must have sinned. And we all know that that's true. We've seen it in Romans 1, beginning in verse 20 and 21, where it says that sinners even know God in some way, deep in their heart of hearts. Are they conscious of it? On an intellectual level? No. But is it true? Yes. And Paul says it's displayed in the creation around us. They see it, though they don't get it. But Paul concludes, so they are without excuse just like Adam and we know it because of the way God made man in his image and he gave him a conscience and so as he says they may not have a written law like the Jews had but as it says in Romans 2 they are a law to themselves so they are condemned righteously by God but then here's Paul's point here put all that aside they're still guilty and they're condemned, and they will die for this sole reason. If nothing else is true that I just said, because of their federal head, their father, Adam. So you're tempted to think then, if that's all true, and it is, you're tempted to think Adam must be the most important man in the history of the world. He's a pretty important one, but he's not the most important. Well, then who is? Well, that would be Christ, as you know. And Adam was a type of Christ, as it says there in verse 14 at the end, who is a type of him who was to come. What is a type? A type is someone who comes before somebody else later, and he points to that person later. Many, many types in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. David was a type of Christ, king of Israel, pointed forward to Christ. Moses was a type of Christ, a great prophet. Christ would be the great coming prophet, just as he was the great coming king, foreshadowed by David. He's the great coming prophet, foreshadowed by Moses. Aaron was a type as the high priest. So Adam was a type of Christ in this specific point. He was a federal head, so is Christ. He's a type 
of Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Third, about Adam. Third thing about Adam here is this. One man's sin or trespass or transgression would be good ways to translate this word for sin here. Brought the death of many. One man's sin brought the death of many. And now, at this point in the history of the world, it is billions. Brought the death of billions of people. Look at verse 15. And the, the verse says, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if, I just want the, the next words, the following clause, by the one man's offense, many died. I've already stated that. I mentioned to you, we have restatement here. The words get changed. The point is the same. One man's sin brought the death of many. It says he transgressed. He, he trespassed. God drew a line. He stepped over it. That's one of the definitions for sin. God says, no, you say, oh, I will. God says, yes, you say, I won't. You either don't step over the line or you do that God draws. The point is, you may say, well, I didn't knowingly break God's commandment like Adam did. I mean, it was right in the face. Your federal head did. That's the point. One man's sin brought the death of many. The next point of comparison with Christ, we're still just on Adam. It only took one transgression of our head, Adam, to condemn us all. That's in verse 16. We, we were not focusing on the first part of the verse which starts out with a sentence, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. But here it says, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. This is how God dealt with Adam's grievous sin. God said, because of that sin, Adam, not only you, in fact, not only you and your wife who helped you to sin, and encourage you to sin, but you and all your posterity, all of them, are going to suffer because of this. You are all going to be condemned. The judgment, which came from one offense, resulted in condemnation. This is how God dealt with this grievous sin of Adam. And the way he did that was not an overreaction. Sometimes you might hear a report you don't like or someone does something you don't like and you overreact. Someone curses a blue streak in front of you, about you, you do the same in return. You overreacted. Later you wish you hadn't done it. Or someone says or does something in your presence, you get so upset you break something. And later on you find yourself saying, I wish I hadn't broken that. I really overreacted. God's reaction was not an overreaction. It was planned in coolness and level-headedness and wisdom and righteousness and truth because he had made Adam the official head of all his descendants.
Another thing about Adam. This one transgression of our head resulted in death reigning over all. Verse 17. Just the beginning part of the verse. For if, and here's the point we want to look at. This is the statement. By one man's offense, death reigned through the one. So sin came to all because of what Adam did. Condemnation came to all because of what Adam did. Death came to all. Here the point that's added in Paul's wording is death reigned over all. Everyone. Again, Adam broke God's law. One man broke God's law. Result, death came to all. Imagine that I said to an artist, one of which I am not, represent this point of Romans 5 that death came to all. Condemnation and death came to all in a painting. So what he does is he paints the whole world and a bunch of little people and over the entire world, very dark, let's say black, storm clouds representing judgment, condemnation, and death. It's like the catechism said, Adam's sins, all mankind is plunged into an estate of sin and misery. It is, from just that one perspective, absolute darkness. And that's how Paul states it. Death reigned. R-E-I-G-N-E-D. And then the next thing. And this is simply a restatement of, we, of what we saw in point D. That's verse 16b. That is, it only took one transgression of our head, Adam, to condemn us all. Look at verse 18. Starts out, therefore as, let me just read the next part as, as my statement here. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. As I said, you see a lot of repetition in this section. It's for emphasis. This is why I'm preaching this this way. Rather than me trying to expound two, three verses and then do it again next week, let's just get the weight of it and let it be impressed upon us the way Paul wrote it. The last point about Adam before we go to the comparison between Adam and Christ, there's another restatement of what we see at the end of verse 12, and this comes in verse 19. It says, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So God commanded, Adam disobeyed, according to the rules that God had set in advance, all of Adam's posterity became sinners. It's true of everyone in this room. If we could imagine that this room was big enough to hold everyone in the world, we could still say the same thing. It happened to everyone in this room, everyone in the world, everyone who has ever lived because of what God stated in advance. All Adam's posterity became sinners, were made sinners. That is, by Adam's disobedience and by God's appointment, by God's plan, by God's foreordaining that it should come to pass. So there's the comparison of Adam and Christ. First part of it, Adam. Second, 
Christ. Christ. I trust I can do this more briefly and then just draw some practical application for us. Christ. Remember, we're noting how Christ and Adam are alike. There's a comparison. Next time, the contrast. Adam introduced sin, condemnation, and death to all his posterity. Quite an inheritance. Thanks, Dad, right? What did Christ introduce? And this is the point. He did introduce something to the world, to all his posterity. What is it? First, Christ brought a free gift, the grace of God, to his people. Notice verse 15, the last part of the verse. I think I'm looking at that. Yeah, the last half of the verse. It mentions the free gift in the first part, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, okay, that's about Adam, but here it talks about a free gift, and then it says this, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. So, First thing is this, Adam brings sin, condemnation, and death. Christ brings grace. He brings a gift, a free gift. And then it says the way he did that was not by his sin, but by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. By the grace of the one man. Think of John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld him full of grace and truth. In other words, by the grace of God in him, he did what he needed to do to save us, and he imparts then grace to us, a free gift to us. And it says that what he did abounded to many, just as with Adam. The one man sinned, the many suffered. With Christ, the one man, as we're going to see, obeyed, the many are blessed. The effect of his act or his acts impacts a multitude, just like the effect of Adam's works and deeds did. Next, while Adam gifted, if you want to say, condemnation, Christ's gift is justification. Christ's gift is justification. It says that in verse 16. Notice in the... In the middle or the two-thirds down part of the verse after the word but it says the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification the free gift resulted in justification justification is what we've been reading about in romans hearing about starting out with romans three twenty-one, going down to verse 26 it talk that's that's what paul's talking about when he says but god has brought in the righteousness of God as a free gift to sinners. That is, their sins are forgiven, that's a free gift, and they're given the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely. And it comes to many, to everyone who believes, to all and on all who believe. This is what Romans is all about. Chapter 5 started out with that statement, now that we're justified, we have peace with God. We have joy. We have hope of the glory to come. 
That's the free gift. And then next, while Adam's sin led to death reigning, Christ's act makes believers reign. That's verse 17. <clears throat> Those, in verse 17, it says this, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, now here's the point about Christ, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Here it doesn't say that death reigns, certainly not, but because of Christ, it doesn't say life reigns. It says that the gift of righteousness, those who receive, I should say, the gift of righteousness will reign. What's the subject of will reign here? It's those who believe. You will reign. You will reign in the end. There's a sense in which you could say uh, you will reign before that, especially if you die. It's a teaching of the Bible. You will reign with Christ. It's a sense in which I think we could say we are now. But that's the idea. Death reign because of Adam. You and I will reign because of Jesus Christ. The final thing about Christ, comparing him with Adam. Christ's one righteous act produced justification and life for all. In verse 18, the middle of the verse, it says, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. There are a number of things I had down here to say about verse 18. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to say them. I'll come back to them at some point. But we're just noticing, Adam introduces something to all his posterity. Christ introduces something into the world for all of his people, those hanging by his belt, if you will. The fifth thing is this, Christ's obedience makes his people righteous. Verse 19 I'll read the whole verse. We're focusing on the last part. The first part is about Adam. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteousness. You see the point I made? If you're, if you're dead in sins and trespasses, the blame is not all Adam's, but there's enough of it to make you a sinner, condemn you, and to condemn you to death. It all comes from Adam. It's all you need. The same is true of Christ. Because of Christ's obedience, because of Christ's act, as it states here, many that is, Christ's people, will be made righteous. You don't have to go any farther than that to explain salvation of sinners. There's a lot more to it. We have the whole book of Romans and the rest of the New Testament and the Bible, but that's going right to the foundation, and that's hitting all the main points we need. Next time, we'll look at the contrast between Adam and Christ 
Let me just close with some practical applications. <clears throat> the first one is this. Since Adam is the root of mankind, he's the root, everything comes from the root in a plant. Since Adam is the root, and since God deals with people in this way of headship and solidarity, you need Jesus Christ. Got that? Adam, God made a head. And we can trace all the sin and misery in the world and in hell back to Adam. Well, why, how about this? This is how a lot of people look at it. I think, I'll just be my own head. You're such a great person, you probably could be. Wink, wink. But God didn't appoint you to be your own head or anybody's head. But he did appoint someone to be a head that could overthrow the work of Adam for the many. And that's Christ. Since Adam is the root of all mankind and God deals with people in this way of headship and solidarity, you need Christ. So there's bad news in this text. You are lost as can be in Adam, your father. But there's also good news. You can be saved in Christ. It's disappointing to hear this news, if you never heard it before, about you and Adam. But complaining will not do you any good. It's reality. It's the way the world works. And God, who wrote the scripture, made the world. You have no say in it. I have no say in it. It's reality. Complaining won't do any good. It won't make things better. It will make your misery worse. Here, and because your complaining is all against God in the last day, it will make your misery worse. You need Christ. Second, moral free agency is not ruled out or canceled here. You might say, well, it's all about Adam and what he did then. It's all about God's predestination. In a sense, we could say it is. It is. But the Bible teaches on every page that sinners are condemned for their own sin. And if you go to hell, it will be because of your own sinful works or lack of righteous works. And on every page, the Bible teaches that sinners are required to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible, if anything is the message of the Bible. So you are thinking way wrong if you take Romans 5 and you jump from there to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do then, and I don't need to do anything, and repentance doesn't make any sense because I'm already damned in Adam. You're wrong. You are required to repent and believe because God has revealed a righteousness apart from the law. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The message that blares from every page of the Bible is believe in that man, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved from your sins. So that leads to my next point here, and it's this. Christ ended what John Murray called the complex of sin, sin, condemnation, and death. You pick that up here? Sin, condemnation, and death. That's what Adam experienced. That's what he did for all of us, and we all then experience it. Sin, condemnation, and death. Christ inaugurated, we could say, he brought about a different complex. If you put together what we have in Romans 5, it's this. Righteousness, justification, and life. It mirrors, it's the opposite of what Adam brought. Instead of sin, there's righteousness. Instead of condemnation, there's justification. Instead of death, there's life. So Christ broke that complex of sin, condemnation, and death for those who believe in him. And he inaugurated this complex, righteousness, justification, and life. Think of it this way. A woman is married to a man. He's an angry man. He's a drunkard. Every night, he stops at the bar on the way home from work. He drinks till he's drunk. He comes home. He's not mellow because of drinking. He's in a rage. And he beats his wife. And he beats his children. And she's one of those women who doesn't get a clue and say, I've got to go somewhere else for my safety. She can't help herself. She stays. There's the complex. There's the vicious cycle. Sin, condemnation, and death. Someone says to her one day, I'll talk to him. My wife, the wife says, we've tried everything. We tried a whole family intervention. We've tried this and that, therapy. He started, nothing works. Someone says, I'll talk to him. The wife says, right. And that person does. The next day, everything is different. Everything is new. He doesn't go to the bar. He stays at work till his work is done. His boss is happy. He skips the bar. He goes home. His wife is happy. His kids are happy. He's not beating anyone. He's not as punching holes through doors or drywall, breaking lamps. He's not doing anything like that. The reason they call the gospel the good news is that that happens to people all the time. I'm not saying that exact scenario. I'm saying that kind of change. That kind of absolute moral transformation of people from the soul outward, through and through, from the heart and beyond. It routinely happens the people who have experienced it, and I'm just talking about people who've converted 
to Christ through repentance and faith. The people who have experienced that can testify to it. And they would testify that the change worked by Christ is greater and far more blessed than that illustration I just made. It's far more, it may not be as outwardly drastic than the drunkard who goes to the bar and then beats his wife and kids every night. But ultimately, it is every bit as radical. Inwardly, it is far more radical. And the message of the Word of God is you, as someone born into sin and condemnation and death in Adam, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't repented and believed in Christ, you are still under that terrible, deadly cycle. But the, messages of, of the message of the Bible is you can experience that radical transformation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the final thing is this. The condemnation and death inherited from Adam is completely just. It is completely just. And the righteousness, justification, and life inherited from Christ is completely gratuitous. In other words, you sin, you get what you deserve, and what you deserve is death. You believe in Christ, you get something you don't deserve. It's completely gr gratuitous. That means you get it as a free gift. You don't earn it. You get it gratis. You get it by grace, as the Bible says. And I just want to make one specific application here, and then I'm done. I've spoken in recent months with people, Christians, who lack assurance of salvation. And a thought hit me, I think it was this morning. If you lack assurance of salvation, this might be helpful for you. Let's take your way of thinking and look at the judgment. Take ourselves to the judgment day and look at it through your lenses, all right? Here are all the sheep on the right hand of Christ. Here before you are all the saints in glory. Moses, Daniel, Paul, Peter, the heroes of the faith. And you're just standing there saying to yourself, I am not like them. I don't deserve to be here. They deserve to be here. I do not. I want to help you think through this in a biblical way for just a moment. When you look at those saints in glory, why do you forget that Moses blew up in anger at the Israelites and was denied entry into the promised land. Why do you forget, or at least just disbelieve, Paul's scriptural assertion that he was the chief of sinners because he actually killed Christians just because they were Christians? Why do you forget that? Why do you forget that Peter 
denied his Lord. At the one point in time, he never should have done such a thing. Look at those sheep on the right hand. Every one of them, including all the heroes, every one of them was a sinner saved by grace. No one on the last day will be bowing down and saying, glory to Moses, glory to Daniel, glory to Paul, glory to Peter. They didn't earn their way there. What the good they did was done by Christ's power and that power alone. Christ... And Christ alone earned their way there for them. They will be in heaven, but they will be there as a completely free gift of God because of Christ. And the Bible says that that is the only way anyone will be there, and that includes you, sinful as you are. Do you believe what the Bible says? Because what I just told you is what the Bible says. Do you believe that? You should. Remember what Paul said. We don't take the time to read it. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Good med afternoon meditation for you if you struggle with assurance. He said, I was the chief of sinners. And he said, I am the chief of sinners. But he said, God saved me by his grace. I'm paraphrasing. So that I might just be an example for everyone who was to follow, even sinners as bad and lame and helpless and weak as you, my dear brother or sister. May God help you to believe that. May he help you to believe that the righteousness, justification, and life inherited from Jesus Christ is completely gratuitous. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would write it on the heart of everyone here this day. May we as saints rejoice in such a great salvation earned for us entirely by such a great champion, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And may sinners realize how condemned they are and how hopeless their case is apart from Christ and flee to him in repentance and faith this very day. Amen.